We are at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This also is God's holy word. James 2, 1 through 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law of the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our merciful Father, we thank you that you indeed are the one who gives generously, that you're the one who distributes good from your hand, that you do so wisely, that you do so generously. Father, we pray that we would learn to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his glory obscures any and all glory in this world, that the glory of this world, of whether of wealth, of power, of intelligence, uh, that Christ's glory obscures all of them, that they are all but darkness and compared to his glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to make wise decisions, that our values would reflect the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that the power of the gospel, the power of your Holy Spirit, would transform our lives, the way that we think, the way that we judge. And Father, we pray in thanks for you are the one who grants your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, if any are here who have not committed their life to Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do that mighty work. Help us to embrace the promises of the gospel. We thank you for your mercy to us. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I think about how it seems like in our society, the world has very little tolerance for hubris or the type of uh, partiality that we often see. For example, you think about a bank. Imagine a a CEO of a company, construction company. Imagine he uh, was doing work, uh, visiting the construction site, but he's the CEO. He has a hard hat on and and the, the typical clothing of a construction worker. And he decides to stop in <clears throat> in the, um, the busy downtown bank, uh, one of the branches, the big ones, and uh, he goes in there, does some transactions, and then he asks to get his parking validated. And imagine if an employee looked at him, sized him up in two or three seconds, and said, hey, I'm not willing to validate your parking. Uh, then imagine what would happen if he felt not only insulted, but concerned of, hey, is this how your bank treats the lowly construction worker, the common person 
who comes in, the average Joe. This type of partiality would certainly be rejected by the world. Imagine how this CEO of this company would say, perhaps I should take my business elsewhere if this is how you treat the common people. How much more so would it, should it be the case that in the church, we should learn values that are completely different than the world? That we should be those who witness the great glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And being followers of him, those who trust in him, our understanding of glory must be transformed. It's not the glory of, of great silver and gold. It's not the glory of power and authority. It's going to be the glory of obscurity. It's going to be the glory of humility. It's going to be the glory of perfect righteousness. That which we see, that which we've witnessed, that which we've come to know in Jesus Christ. And knowing this glory, it should transform our values, how we judge, what we esteem. The Lord warns that what is, what is desirable among men is uh, despised by God and vice versa. The world's values will necessarily be different than ours. Here, as we think about this book of James, he just finished addressing this matter of pure and undefiled religion. Then he expands on this topic in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, James addresses a number of topics. He's, that's kind of like his introduction, where he covers, these are all the things I'm going to cover in, in my letter, in the five chapters, in chapter 1. And then he expands on them in, in the remaining four chapters. Here, he moves from pure and undefiled religion to address the topic of true faith. So it's not just religion, he's addressing what does true faith look like. And true faith can be identified, if anything, by this one matter. How highly do you esteem the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory? God the Father sent his son, and he sent him with everything that he needed. Meaning that his parents were so poor, they could not afford a larger sacrifice. Was it two turtle doves? That was the prescribed sacrifice. Uh, at the time of birth, <clears throat> and it indicated that they were poor. He was a carpenter. That Jesus did not have a, a nice place at the Waldorf Astoria or any five-star hotel. He was in a cattle stall, and he had a manger for a crib. But I hope you realize none of those things were essential for his role. Jesus comes in humility. He comes in poverty. But he comes with perfect righteousness, the very righteousness that you and I lack. And perhaps you've witnessed, perhaps you've seen, perhaps you've come to cherish that this indeed is glorious. So the truth that we see in this passage, James 2, verses 1 through 9, the sin of partiality is a denial of your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and is altogether foolish. The sin of partiality is the denial of your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and is altogether foolish. Let's begin. Uh, is three points. First is an exhortation to refrain from the sin of partiality in verse 1. Second, an illustration to convict of the sin of partiality in verses 2 and 3. And then third, the reasons to reject the sin of partiality in verses 4 through 9. <clears throat> so the first point, an exhortation to refrain from the sin of partiality in verse 1. There in verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here, 
when we think about the Christian church. Throughout time, in all time periods, the church had and has and will have a mix of social classes. This was God's design. Think about how in the early church, we read, our elder read earlier in James 5, that, that James addresses the rich specifically. These are the landowners. How uh, the workers have come to mow the fields and they withheld payment. That this was not supposed to happen. So also in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul gives instruction about the, um, the administration of the Lord's Supper. He speaks about how within the church you have the wealthy who brought a, a whole lot of food and plenty of alcohol. And that they, they were getting drunk and eating a whole bunch of the food they brought. But that the poor had no food to eat. So here we see that there always was this issue. The challenge of how is the church that consists of the rich and the poor, of the slave and the free, of the various groups, the Jew and the Greek, how were they all to get along? Here, we all get along because we have a new identity in Jesus Christ. That all of these distinctions, that we are one in Jesus Christ, that the promise was given to Abraham, and all who are baptized into Christ Jesus are heirs according to the promise. We have a new identity. And we ought to judge according to this new identity. Here, this term partiality, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This partiality is to receive someone's face. It's to receive the outer beauty. There's a saying that uh, beauty is only skin deep. Uh, this, this is true in, in the sense that here, when we look at someone's outward beauty, whether it be his wealth, whether it be uh, the, the attractiveness of, of, um, of a beautiful face, uh, whether it be a matter of someone who has high social standing, who is respected in the world. Here, partiality means to judge or to make distinctions based on insignificant things. Now, if you can imagine someone who favored people who wore corduroy jackets or green pants, we might conclude that has no bearing on anything. Well, that's the very thing that the, uh, that the, the writer James, the Holy Scriptures are giving us, is that someone's outward wealth and their social standing, uh, their ethnicity, that they have no bearing on godliness. That when we come into Christ's church, as we've been given new eyes, we've given new hearts, that when we judge, which we will judge, we're called to judge by a right standard, a new standard. Here, uh, we think about the way in which wealth and ethnicity or social class they have no bearing on social good. Those things are independent. Social standing uh, is independent of <clears throat> someone's spiritual standing. It should be independent of their spiritual standing within the church. Here, we also know how necessary <clears throat> this exhortation is for all of us. <clears throat> we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We're called to judge by new standards. We're called to judge according to a new standard. And 
though we are a new, new creation in Jesus Christ, is it the case that we still tend to judge by our eyes of flesh, not by the eye of faith? You can imagine how quickly people make these judgments and distinctions. Someone walks into a store, and that judgment is made in about two or three seconds, a scan of, of the various things, how, how someone judges. Is his hair neat? Uh, how much do his glasses cost? Uh, what, what about uh, his shoes? Uh, is there a nice crease down uh, his pants? Uh, does that look like a second-hand dress? Uh, all these matters, we're very skilled at judging it because this is, how, this is what it means to function in the world. But being new creation in Jesus Christ, are we able to see those things so quickly? The spiritual characteristics... Here, as we consider what is good in life, what is valuable, what is esteemed, that we ought to esteem the things that the Lord esteems. And these things we don't judge by the eye of flesh. It requires wisdom. It requires discernment. Here, the whole passage really <clears throat> can be boiled down to this one verse and this one section about how you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here, this Lord of glory mentioned, the, the Greek used in it is very awkward. It's very awkward the way that it's written. And perhaps the awkwardness is there so that you and I would ask, why is it there? Why is it mentioned? Why does it stick out like a sore thumb? Here, this book of James, it doesn't mention the Lord Jesus very often. Supposedly, this is only one of two places where Christ is mentioned. But he's mentioned as the Lord Jesus Christ or the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And this sin of partiality, we're told, is a denial that Christ is the Lord of glory. I ask you, what does your heart desire above everything else? What is it that you consider the primary good in a person? Is it that they resemble Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is it wealth that the person uh, is wealth, is able to generate great wealth? Is it power? Is it influence? Is it in intelligence or degrees? What is then glorious to you? Despite all these things, are you able to see that Jesus Christ is above all those? He is the highest glory the highest glory that there can possibly be. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Scriptures certainly speak about glory, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we see that the world has a view of glory also. And wasn't it the case that Christ lacked just about every one of them? Christ is your Lord. He is your Savior. Shouldn't his glory overshadow the glory of this world? To the worldly eye, nothing is glorious but what the world treasures. And all of those things that the world treasures, they will all be consumed at the end. They will not they will not go on. They will not persist 
They will not last into eternity. Here, we see what happened regarding the leaders of the world and their choice in 1 Corinthians 2.8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The fact that Jesus was crucified is proof that they rejected him. The Jews rejected him. The, the Romans rejected him. The rulers of this age rejected him. No, he's not someone of significance. Hey, shouldn't we release for you? What about this man Jesus who proclaims himself as the king of the Jews? No, release for us Barabbas. Here, when we think about glory, the glory of Jesus Christ is that he is perfect. He is the son of God come in the flesh and he is crucified on behalf of sinners. We can understand. We can understand how forgiveness is something that's rare. Genuine forgiveness. You've heard these stories. You've heard these stories of, for example, um, a Christian family. <clears throat> a son is murdered. And the parents of the son who was murdered, they end up meeting the murderer in prison. And they attend his, uh, his court case. He's convicted. They're thankful. Yet, they extend forgiveness to the murderer. And over time, the murderer is converted. And he understands what he's received from, from this man and his wife. That you took our son. And yet here, they have a relationship. Because they're, they realize that they're both believers in Christ. And, and we look at that and we, we marvel saying, how could this man have forgiven such a person who sinned against them took the life of their son. Yet here, we ought to understand that there's something far greater. That our Lord Jesus, he is the one who is perfect in righteousness. Yet he willingly lays down his life for sinners. The perfect for the imperfect. The holy for the wretched. The good news of the gospel is that this Jesus is indeed glorious. He is the one who willingly forgives sinners. He calls sinners to himself, and he calls us that we might believe upon him, that we might see his glory. Looking past all the other things, the poverty, the obscurity, the humility, but that this is glorious because he is one. He is God who's come in the flesh, that he is the one who calls sinners to himself, that we might receive the promise of the Father. Here, we oftentimes come to such a passage and we tend to exaggerate what it says. James here is not abolishing all class distinctions. He's not advocating any kind of anarchy or a revolution or a classless society. That's not the goal of Christianity. Here, we think about some of the simple things. For example, uh, you're sitting in the subway and... Uh, they even have some of these chairs right, right by the entrance of the subway. It says that they're <clears throat> reserved for the elderly or, or those uh, who are injured or, or whichever. <clears throat> that it's understandable. A young man uh, sitting in that chair sees this elderly lady who's struggling to, to walk. That he should stand up and give up that chair. That there are such distinctions that we ought to honor. The scriptures speak 
about how the, the young people ought to rise in the presence of the age, that honor should be given to the gray heads, the gray beards, so to say. But here James is calling Christians to judge by a different standard, a spiritual standard, and that's something completely different. The church must have a different standard than the world. So that's the first point in exhortation to refrain from the sin of partiality. We have the second point, an illustration to convict of the sin of partiality, in verses 2 and 3. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Here we have some kind of a gathering, a synagogue, a gathering of people. Could it be a, a church context? Is this uh, new visitors being ushered to a seat within the church? Or is this a church court, uh, meaning judging disputes between brothers? Uh, the bottom line is that there's partiality, there's favor shown, there's favoritism shown. We have the description of the two men. One is rich. It doesn't immediately say that to us, but we're told that he comes in with this gold ring. And a gold ring is this status symbol. Think back to the book of Esther, how King Ahasuerus gave Mordecai his signet ring. It was a sign of his power. The prodigal son, in being restored by his father, received a ring. Pharaoh gave Joseph a signet ring also. And it was Pharaoh who said, it's only by the fact that he's Pharaoh is he greater than Joseph. He also wore fine apparel. It's another status symbol. Literally, it was shiny or dazzling, dazzling clothes. The prodigal son, when he returned, also received a fine robe from his father. You can imagine this is probably silk of some sort, expensive. Yet the poor man, we're told, he had filthy clothes, likely because he worked a whole day in the field uh, or, or in the workshop, that he was covered with uh, um, sawdust or with dirt because he worked a full day. And back then, the commoner only could afford one garment that he would come back and wash it at night, and in the morning he would wear it again. That back then, the wealthy person was the one who had more than one garment. Here, the response of these two men is pointed out. The rich man receives a good seat. He's, he receives quality attention. Uh, he's, he's shown that they desire him to be there, and he will be well cared for and catered. Yet to the poor man, he's told, you stand here. Uh, here, we understand that uh, sitting and having a chair is something of value. If you ever see a picture of the, uh, the officers of a company, the guy who's called the chairman is because he has a seat. If there's ever pictures, those who are the higher-ups, they're going to be ones seated in the picture. And those who are the lower down, they're actually going to be the ones standing. And then in the statement... <clears throat> you sit down at my feet, that this is not only a place of like not, not having a chair to sit on, but sitting on the dirty floor, but this is actually uh, a, a description of uh, one who becomes a lowly disciple. So the Apostle Paul in Acts speaks about how he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, this rabbi, to learn from him. 
So here, the poor man is not only given a poor place, an inferior place, he's also told that, uh, that he is one who will be assigned less worth, that he is the one who will receive instruction and not be able to give it. Here, we ought to understand <clears throat> that God often exalts the poor person, poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith, that he is the one who gives exceedingly great gifts uh, to commoners. He gives them gifts, the gift of faith, the, the gift of joy and peace and wisdom that Ecclesiastes chapter 9 mentions about the poor man, we're told, the poor man who in his wisdom saved the city. Yet nobody remembered him. And the reason why is because he was a poor man, even though he saved the city. You see how we have an example of how such judgments came to a very tragic end. We see that in the example of Israel and their selection for their first king, King Saul. We're told that Saul was a handsome man. He was the proverbial tall, dark, and handsome. That he was a head, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And if there were any kind of, well, I suppose you don't have male beauty contests, right? I don't think they did then. They don't, they don't have them now either. But if there were a male beauty, pa beauty pageant, Saul would have won it. He was entirely handsome. And it was even Samuel. Samuel, when he went to go, he was told, Sam, God told Samuel, you will go to the house of Jesse, and there you will anoint the next king. And he had to be warned by God, hey, listen, because here Samuel was so upset that Saul uh, was rejected as king. He was there trying to stare at his navel. And, and God tells him, get up, go to the house of Jesse. And God's warning, even to Samuel the prophet, for Samuel 16, 7, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here, is God saying it's a negative to be tall and handsome? No. Those characteristics are independent of one who is suited to be king. How would you have chosen? Is this how we choose uh, people to rule in the church? This is a good example of utter failure of judging by outward appearances. Uh, he came from a good family. He came from a wealthy family. He was tall. He was handsome. But yet... He wasn't suited to be king of Israel. Here I ask you the question. If you lived 2,000 years ago and you witnessed Christ, would you have passed him up? Would you have overlooked him as just another charlatan? Hey, look at this guy. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You think about the statements that some people had said. Those in his hometown... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was that even some of his disciples who said that nothing good can come out of Nazareth? Here, we ought to understand that in Christ, we must be able to judge and to esteem traits that are different than that of the world. Here, the, the church ought to be a place where people are esteemed because who God has made them to be. That their spiritual traits, their spiritual character, that these are the things that cause us to esteem others.
So that's the second point, an illustration to convict of the sin of partiality. We have the third point, the reasons to reject the sin of partiality in verses 4 through 9. Here. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Here, James mentions a number of arguments. They're rather quick. He just kind of puts them out there, starting from verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Partiality causes disunity in the body. Have you not then made distinctions? Are you not creating a separation? Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here, the repetition is out of one. The body is one, not two. Anytime you start to think, you start to speak in the church in terms of us and them, there's going to be an issue because that's no longer one. That's two. Your vocabulary reflects the view of being two groups, making distinctions, us and them then there is already error. We need to think in terms of one. It's only us. The Holy Spirit seeks to build this unity, but yet partiality causes disunity, causes division. Partiality is also proof of judging with evil motives. Here he says, and become judges with evil thoughts. Here, perhaps the most simple one regarding the rich is Are you servilely fawning over the rich man because you think that you will obtain his favors? If the motive for profit, selfish profit, is removed, then uh, wouldn't your partiality come to a grinding halt? The answer is yes, it should. James, he addresses this very matter. He puts an end to it by mentioning in verse 6, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So he says, oh, if you're going to servilely uh, fawn over the rich person, you think you're going to profit from him. He says, no, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. In fact, it's the rich person who's dragging you off to court, and you're paying him. It's not the poor person. He doesn't have have the expensive and quality lawyers. It's the rich who who are profiting from you. Verse 5. Partiality opposes God in his ways. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God chose the poor in this world to be rich in faith. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He doesn't say that there are not any. He says that there are not many. Because certainly there are wealthy, there are intelligent, uh, there are powerful people who are Christians. Yet the statement is not many. That God is one who takes particular notice of those 
poor on the bottom of society. Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. You feel them to the little ones in this world. Here, it's not as if every poor person has, has merit because of their poverty. No. Uh, the statement is to those who love Christ. They're to those who love Christ, who love Jesus Christ. That there's nothing inherently good about being poor. We ought to understand that we ought not to dishonor the poor man. Here, partiality also unites us to the world uh, that opposes God's people. Verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? We ought not to uh, unite ourselves with those who are against uh, those in the church. There's the rich who often use uh, the wrongful use of legitimate authority or the use of illegitimate authority, either way, they're the ones who drag you into court. They're the ones who are making God's people poor. Here, partiality also unites us to those who blaspheme in the name of God. There in verse 7. They blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Here's a reminder. By whom are you called? By whom are you named? That we name the name of Jesus Christ. And we're told that when we show partiality, it may not be those who blaspheme the holy name by which we've been called. In verses 8 and 9, he gives the argument partiality is a transgression of God's holy law. It's a transgression of the law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Here, as we think through this passage and this warning about the sin of partiality, we consider how it applies to us in our everyday life. Parents, what kind of values do you impress upon your children of what is good and holy? Do, we, do they see us esteeming those who are wealthy, esteeming those of a particular social class, esteeming those who are of a particular ethnic group? May we not be making such distinctions because we are giving them instruction in that way. God commands us not to do that, and we ought not to train up our children with those biases. Regarding the, the rulers, the elders of the church, uh, how is it that we welcome people? Do we show favor to those who are wealthier? To those who come in, who seem a little, as, as James says here, shabbier? Do we tend to ignore them? Do we try to make it clear that they're not welcome? When we not do such a thing? Even as we consider the matters of discipline, uh, the matters of uh, making decisions, um, may we desire to welcome God's people. For the children of the church, by what standard are you using to judge others as good or bad? Is it popularity? Is it outward beauty? Is it being funny or athletic or having good grades? While some of these traits are laudable, the Lord commands us that we would esteem highly those with spiritual traits because these spiritual characteristics trump all of them. Here are two the single sisters, the single sisters in the church. We don't have many of them, but uh, here, it's valuable. Uh, do you, would you dismiss a godly, loving, faithful young man because he's not wealthy 
or, or tall enough, or he doesn't come from a, a wealthy family. Right? He, let's say he is a working class man. Is he dismissed because he comes from the wrong social class? Uh, many will profess or, or to uh, promise their love, but true love, who can find? Here, if you can find a man who's willing to lay down his life for you, and you knew it, why would you turn this man down because he came from the wrong class or he's three or four inches too short? Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> to believers, what is it that you value and treasure most? In that, you will show partiality because that is what you treasure most highly. When was the last time that you admired a brother or a sister for their Christian character, that of wisdom, humility, Love, gentleness, holiness. All Christians are called to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Here, oftentimes Christians think that we can obtain approval from the world by making these little compromises. The world often says that. If only you would compromise in this one area, then we'll accept you. Try that. See what happens. You compromise in that one area. What's, what's the next step? Oh, now we love you. No, they're going to say, now compromise in this area, and it won't end. Instead, why don't you simply be faithful to the Lord and not compromise at all? Here, it's a reminder to us that the Lord Jesus is glorious. Everything about him is good. And that we ought not to let the glory of this world and the things that are valuable in this world to obscure the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To those who are materially wealthy, it's a reminder to you not to put your confidence or your pride in your earthly wealth. Nobody takes earthly wealth and degrees and honors with them to eternity. It gets left behind here that in hell, nobody cares. And in heaven, nobody cares either. Those things are left behind. It's also a reminder for the wealthy in this, in this life, materially wealthy, that that is not the basis of God's acceptance for you or of you. Christ is that basis. He is the basis of our righteousness. He is our hope for forgiveness. And at the foot of the cross, uh, there, there's, no, there's no slope. It is level ground. Everyone, everyone is Need, everyone needs the gospel of Jesus Christ and will all need it in that same way. To the Christians who are poor in this world or of the wrong social class, it's a reminder that God chose those who are lowly and despised in this world to be rich in faith and with spiritual blessings. Realize that these are exceedingly great treasures that you have because the world cannot give them to you. You cannot buy them with money. And because of that, his gifts, his spiritual gifts to you are priceless. May you never forget that. Here, to those who are outside of Christ, you realize that though the world may highly esteem you, that you gratiate yourself in whatever circle the world has, you realize that this doesn't work with our holy God. He sees through to the inner recesses of the heart. Here, are you able to see anything glorious in a poor Jewish carpenter? You may not, but understand that the meek and the lowly Jesus, the one who had no stately form or majesty, 
He is your only hope for salvation. That the perfect God, the holy God, sees into the inner recesses of the heart. There is no hiding anything from him. That the pomp of nations and governments come and go, but our Lord Jesus, he is that perfect standard. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Either you are in Christ, trusting in him, exalting him, glorying in him, or you're glorying in the ways of this world. Our Lord Jesus is the one who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the redeemer of his people. Put your hope in him and trust that he is the one who saves you from your sins. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you for you indeed are holy, that you have given us of your son. Father, we pray that you would guide us in the ways that we judge. May we judge rightly. Father, may we esteem Christ as the greatest glory. And Father, we pray that we would lay behind our old ways. We thank you for your generous provision for us. May we honor you. May we seek uh, to be a blessing to those around us. Uh, May we lay aside our old ways and old values. We thank you that in Christ we have true hope for forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn in your hymnals to hymn 281. We'll stand and sing together, Rejoice the Lord is King, 281.